everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to another episode of It's All About Food, and it's 2024. And I'd like to think in this 21st century that we are going to bring you things you haven't heard before, things maybe we should have been talking about for a long time and never had the courage. And we're going to start that today with Ruby Roth. Big applause. (laughs) (laughs) I have spoken with Ruby Roth, I think, three times when she came out with children's books. That's why we don't eat animals. Vegan is love. The ABCs of being kind. All wonderful books. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Welcome, Ruby. Thank Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me back. And yes, this the span of those. There were actually four four books in the vegan category and then another one in another children's book in kind of like the emotional well-being uh, category. But yes, that th- those were, uh, we've probably spoken since 2009-ish. You know, I started this podcast in 2009. So okay. you were one of the first people I spoke to and I thank you. I'm bowing to you for that. And I'm really honored and privileged after the journey you've taken and the growth you've made as an author, as an artist, as a person, as a woman, that I'm able to speak with you today about all of that. Thank you. It means a lot to me as I as I've moved into these new chapters that we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, to kind of re, re, still reconnect with the audience I had built initially around the children's books. Well, it was groundbreaking at the time. And we need children's books about truth. Yeah. Truth in a way that they can digest it. So that was a really important time. You are a very courageous person. Oh, thank you. And I don't know if you realize how courageous you are. I remember speaking with you about those other books a long time ago. And I was surprised because what you were doing was courageous but your voice was very soft and young. And it, okay, I'm from New York. I have yeah. this voice, like I'm yeah. from New York. I yeah. sound tough. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really see the connection, but you know, it doesn't really matter. We can be strong and courageous in whatever form sure. we have and choose to take. Yeah. Well, I wasn't even, um, I, I wasn't quite prepared for what happened with my children's books when they hit the major media and they were considered controversial and people were telling me that I was brainwashing children about veganism. And we didn't even know at the time if, you know, or this, what the media was saying, we didn't know if at the time if veganism was even safe for children. And so it was, um, uh, you know, me, I'm an artist and a writer. And suddenly I was put in the position um, not to talk about those aspects of the book, the artistic and creative um, endeavor, but to speak for the movement and the um, right of these books to exist and, you know, to argue on national stages that this uh, demographic of veganism was powerful, was doing something from the earth for the planet that was important in the context of the current era we live in. And, um and so I bolstered myself up and and got ready to argue, you know, on on TV and in the media. Unfortunately, that expression that you're brainwashed, trying to 
vegan brainwash people is still being used today. There's a new piece out on Netflix, You Are What You Eat, a twins experiment, and people are saying that that film is trying to vegan brainwash people. But the point is, you put people on a diet like this, a healthy plant diet, and all of a sudden, all their health markers improve. That's not brainwashing. Yeah. That's truth. Yeah, we're actually, that was one of my arguments at the time, is we're actually counter- countering the brainwashing that we all grow up with where meat is just normalized without question not meat in general but just a few handfuls of animals you know that are that have been groomed for centuries to you know be our food not all animals we i, I personally think if we were you know true true carnivores we'd be eating grub and insects and whatever if squirrels and anything we can get our hands on so you know, yes. we've, we've all been brainwashed to think this is what humans eat, you know, a few categories of animal food. So, OK, yeah. let's jump to the current topic, okay. which is your new book, Boss Inside, a Reclamation of the Feminine. Yeah, this is a very intimate portrait. You touch on so many topics we could probably spend months, years <laughs> talking you. about so many of these things. I'm going to try and get to all of my notes. We'll see what okay. happens. Okay. <laughs> but let's start with the beginning. Your, what I see is a beginning where you had scoliosis and you had to wear a brace. Can yeah. you just briefly tell us a little bit about that and how you think it informed your life? Yeah. So this <laughs> starts out by reaching back into my childhood to kind of contextualize um, reasons for the relationships and how I had relationships later. Um, when I was three years old, my mom discovered that I had scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. She saw it before any doctors could see it because she had had scoliosis and at 12 years old been operated on way before that surgery you know, became what it is today. It was very brutal surgery. She was fused top top to bottom of her spine. Um, and so she was always looking out for me. And um, so I was diagnosed at three. The curvature was al already beginning to show up. And she was so adamant about um, protecting me from the route of surgery um, that was inevitable for a lot of people at the time that we went, we chose an alternative route, which was very aggressive back bracing. And so first from age, I was too young to, to brace immediately. So from age four to six, I did nightly electromuscle stimulation therapy, which was probably, it was painful and it was, they probably couldn't even turn it up as, you know, the dials as high to, for me being so little for me for that I could even tolerate it for it to even work. So, um, and then at age six, I was old enough to start back bracing. And so from age six to 19, I wore a hard blast plastic back brace from right under my collarbones down to my hips. Um, and I wore that 20 plus hours a day for the next th 13 years. So this informed my life um, in a way that I was very inward. I was very disciplined. I had to um, commit to this assignment. 
Um, and it, it affected the way I write about it in the book is how it affected my relationships. Um, cause I was very inward and, and I learned to kind of hold my emotions in because I was tolerating pain and tolerating a pretty heavy assignment, um, by wearing this thing. And so I didn't learn early to express my needs. I learned to tolerate and, and I was kind of groomed to, um, by accident, I had very loving parents, you know, who are attentive, but by accident, I was being groomed to tolerate pain and restriction. And so in hindsight, as an adult, I can see where that type of training fed into relationships where I didn't learn how to speak my needs. I kind of went with the flow and put other, you know, other people's needs first. Um, and, um, you know, I, I didn't even let anyone close to me for a long time. So I didn't, uh, I didn't have a lot of relationship experience in my twenties when I got into the most significant relationship of my life. How are you today physically? Um, I avoided surgery. I stuck with the same doctor throughout my life um, until he passed away. And the woman who took over, I saw her, you know, in my adulthood, in my 30s. My spine is still as crooked. I have severe curvatures, um, but I have free movement. I'm not in pain. I've always worked on my body. Veganism was, you know, another reason that uh, I feel like the bracing shaped my life. I was, I understood that the vessel I was in was something I was occupying. I was not my body, but that this body needed a certain amount of care in a certain way. And so veganism made sense to me at the time to, to be as healthy as I could in this vessel. Is Bracing necessary for all people with scoliosis? Do you think it was necessary for you? Um, today, I don't think they brace the way they were doing in my childhood unless your organs are being crushed by the curvature, which I was not. So I think my generation was a little, my mom's generation was extremely experimented on. My generation was experimented on and then now I think um, there is still some bracing. There, that is still the go-to. But um, I think surgery is just pushed upon later if you don't brace. And, you know, I was lucky to be cared for by a doctor that, that told me, don't ever let them operate on you. You know, as, as bad as your curves are, you will lose range of motion. Um, you know, you'll have to learn to bend from your hips, not from, I, it just sounded awful to me. It sounded worse. So it's still, um, it's still a part of my life. I feel crooked every day. I work on it on, in some capacity every day, even if that's, you know, just posture adjustments, but it still um, remains one of the biggest factors in my life that makes me who I am. And what my daily life experience is like. I'm sorry you had to go through this. Thank I you. know that you will never forget the experience. It informs who you are. And many people experience some sort of 
embrace, whether it's physical or mental, right? Uh, and it affects their life going forward. So everything that you have to share that is a result of your experience certainly is universal. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely informed who I am and, and how I deal with life and how I deal with challenges. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still learning from it. Okay. So back jumping into the book further now, Boston Cider Reclamation of the Feminine. Did you write this with someone in mind? Was it therapy for you? So this book, I, I didn't know when I was writing that I was writing a book. Um, the This book contains four years of select journal entries as I left the 14-year relationship with the man who was at first my art mentor um, and reclaimed my life, my creativity, my art, my sexuality, my relationship to men and masculinity. I hadn't been single, you know, since I was about 20 years old and had, you know, started then to, to kind of mold my life around this man's life. Um, and so the book is, I wanted to keep it as raw and real as it was when I wrote it. So there's very little editing of these journal entries, except for clarification where the reader, you know, would have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so it's, it's an extremely personal, not really planned out. Um, I realized later that I had documented this transformation in my life so thoroughly that it could be a book. I'm glad you did that. I'm going to say something that's very, uh, may sound trite. Relationships are hard. Yes. And maybe you could talk about the difference between compromise, which is important in a relationship when we're melding two lives together, compromise versus control. Yeah. I think compromise comes the the entry requirement for compromise is that you understand your own needs and if you don't understand your own needs then compromise is often a compromise of your actual soul because you start to get you, you start your life starts to get um directed and controlled by somebody else who understands their needs and can't help you know, even it probably ha happened more subconsciously than with any malicious intent, intent, but my partner's life took over um, our lives. I was, in a sense, accompany accompanying him and supporting his journey more than I was um, looking at our relationship and finding ways that we could both thrive and grow within the relationship because I had so little relationship experience and I was used to being inward and going with the flow of whatever was happening to me. I kind of got, uh, I started off this very intense relationship. Um, we were together by that, by the time I was 24, um, in a kind of amateur state of adulthood 
as far as under knowing my own needs and standing up for them. Sometimes I like to simplify relationships. And I know, especially with a lot of women, they're looking for what I call a unit. <laughs> they're looking for someone to fit their idea, a partner, a husband, someone to father their children because their baby clocks are going off and they want someone to fit this description. And in the same way, I'm sure this person you were involved with loved you and cared about you in the best way Absolutely. that he could at the time, but you fit a need at the time because he had a young daughter and you could come right in and fill all the gaps, right? Yeah. To take yeah. care of things while he was working and be a mother to the child. Yeah. And also I was young and didn't have so much experience in the art world that I was headed toward. I'd always felt like I was going to be in the art world. And so he was a giant to me. He was already established mm -hmm. and I was learning so much. So I was completely enthralled in the relationship in that way and um, thought that I was entering something where I would be on this incredible art journey. I'd kind of, I didn't, I went to an, I Art was one of my majors in school as well, but it wasn't a great art program. I always wanted more. And so he was also part of, you know, me grabbing for continued education and to fill in, uh, fill in the blanks of what I felt like I was missing coming out of school. So um, yes, I, I, there was adoration there for him and we were best friends and we had such a deep connection and love for art that, um, I definitely fit into his life that was exciting for both of us, but maybe more supportive in my direction toward him. The other thing I want to discuss in this relationship was being a step parent. Mm-hmm. And there are so many shades of step parents yeah. and you experience obviously one of them and you were all in and you had this beautiful relationship with the child. Yeah. And then when the relationship ended with your partner, the relationship with the child ended. And I can't imagine how heart-wrenching that must have been. I know other relationships where for example, one that I'm familiar with is mm -hmm. a partner that lost uh, his wife through cancer. They had a young child mm -hmm. and uh, I was a friend and I like committed to be friends with this child forever. And then he remarried and the woman he married wanted to control everything and yeah. was concerned that anybody that was involved from the prior life would introduce things that were out of her control. So we were all cut off, including the relatives of the the woman who died. Wow. And uh, so I was cut off from uh, being involved with this yeah. child. And that you was- understand. You understand that There pain. were so many different levels. And then there are step parents that try to be involved with the children and they're not really given the authority and that's difficult too. So there are many different shades and you certainly experienced one and that's part of this book too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I had known my former stepdaughter since she was born. 
So there was a relationship to both of her parents in the beginning when I, when I met all of them and, um, I was there, I was around, I knew her parents before she was born. So I loved her from the second I met her and was in a position to care for her by the time she was about two and a half. And I considered her my own blood. And so did my family. They were her aunts and uncles and uh, um, grandparents. And we thought that was going to be forever you know, no matter, no matter what happened. Um, but what, what ended up happening and, and you see in the book is, um, me inevitably being cut off, um, because of her father's, you know, whatever he was going through, he couldn't, he couldn't stand, um, allowing me to keep the connection with her. And so we were cut off. I, I texted her, you know, throughout my time away, I would send her, um, home videos, you know, to kind of underscore how much I cared about her and that, um, I kept telling her over and over, it doesn't matter how much time passes, we will always be your family. And so I was functioning after being cut off as if I didn't exist, um, on faith, that she would circle back to find me when she gained enough power in her own life. Well, I'm hoping one of the things that this book does for people that read it, no matter which side they're on, that they, they can relate to it in some way. If they're a child that's been separated somehow from an important adult, there's hope that they know that there was this love connection, maybe it can be reconnected or just know in their heart it was there and it was important. And then for those who have lost someone, just to know they're not alone and again, have some sort of hope. But yeah, and I think a lot of it to cope, um, I would say I focused on the idea that what is sacred to me cannot be taken away. And even if there was space and distance, that the original bonds were sacred. And no matter what happened, um, if I was cut off completely forever, or someone, you know, God forbid had died, you know, and, and then I never got to make amends, um, that I would still hold what was sacred to me in my heart. I'm tearing up. Just give me a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jumping to a different subject. When we're in a relationship, I don't know about anybody else other than myself, but you want that person to know you fully and understand you. And then you could move forward sharing and delighting and it never works out that way. And you may want to share things, but sometimes it's best to filter and mm -hmm. not share everything. Many people cannot manage knowing about your past relationships, especially sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. Even if you're in a monogamous long-term relationship, people can't handle knowing that you've done things with other people. Yeah, I think men men especially are are less equipped they don't want any images in their head 
you know, this may be, this may be, uh, becomes a discussion of the well-tread upon topic of the Madonna horror complex that, that we have in our society of, of that, that women are either seen as like pure mother nurturing types, or you're ruined, like, you know, you're scarlet lettered and you're ostracized throughout time. Women have been, you know, ostracized or burned at the stake for revealing their true nature. So we're still reckoning with thousands of years of history as women um, and what we bring to light and what we keep, you know, protected inside ourselves. Do you have a recommendation? Should we, does it depend on who we're with or should we just tell our truth and see the reaction? I think there's two things. One is it, a, I think for the human journey, you want to move closer and closer to your core self and embodying your true nature or whatever that is. And on the other hand, I was just had this conversation with a friend. She was saying in her theory of relationships is the golden rule, do unto others as you would want done to you. And I disagreed with that. And I think one of the one of the meanings of a relationship, whether it's someone you love or in your family or a romantic partner, is that you have to learn how the other person needs to be loved. And it may be different from how you need to be loved. So the golden rule doesn't always apply to making a relationship better. You know, my my ex was so, I mean, I felt, I felt beloved by him and by his daughter, but I did feel like there was a part of me that was not being seen and not being loved the way that I needed to be loved, which was given space and time alone to foster my own creativity. What I'm hearing and what I agree with is that if we can understand the other person in the relationship, understand their flaws, understand their vulnerability, understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and their triggers. You And their triggers, yes. Their, their trauma. So, yeah, you, you know where to step lightly. Yeah. And, and you know where to support. And if you want to be in that relationship, those things are really important and compassionate. Yeah. But if you find it is smothering, and you can't be who you you truly want to be, then things need to change. And that mean may mean leaving the relationship. Yeah. I've been I, there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that the I've always said the quickest way out of any, any predicament is to tell the truth. So if you're being suffocated in a relationship or you're not being your true self, or I mean, the best thing to do is bring it to the table at least for yourself, bring it out to the table out loud for yourself so that you start understanding and observing what's going on inside of you. And there's one aspect of what you said, you know, that our, our partners don't want to know about our past. This was one last, it was one of the last steps of reckoning with if putting something so vulnerable um, out into the public is I one of the first people I shared the book with was a male friend. 
And he immediately, had, I mean, I, I joke that he took it like a man. He immediately had a negative reaction to you're sharing too much. Wow. I don't, for, for, for friend to friend, I don't think any man who's ever involved with you should read this book. And I just started to realize at that moment, the uh, phenomenon that when women share their stories throughout time, they're punished. Yeah. And even in a, a friendship with a man that I, I started to feel scarlet lettered, you know, that, that me sharing stories about my sexuality um, and growing into it in a new way in my mid thirties, you know, that I, that I had ever before what once I was single at that age, um, that that was dangerous territory to share. And I, and we've seen that a lot in the media with women who, you know, tell stories of being abused or harassed. It's, we always know that they're met with hatred mm -hmm. and, and kind of maybe labeled forever as the kind of woman who talks. And, um, that, that was one of the last steps I had to confront and really shore myself up that, I was ready for whatever comes next. Hey, everybody, we're listening to Ruby Roth, who is one courageous, brave boss <laughs> who wrote Boss I, Inside. And I'm so glad we're talking about it. I hope this book is groundbreaking for you. so many people because we need to have these conversations. Now, just a couple of things before we continue we're at a time when the black and white thing between men and women is is breaking apart. And there are many mm -hmm. shades of sexuality. There are many sick shades of gender. And we need to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And exploitation and abuse and controlling and all those things play a part in all relationships. Yes. And then the other thing I want to talk about is hormones. And we all have different bodies. Mm -hmm. And we all have different hormone balances and imbalances based on what we eat or our environment or just our DNA. And this affects our sexuality. There are many people who feel more sexual than others. Some don't have the sexual needs that other people have. Mm -hmm. And those needs can change over time. Um, I know that uh, I've always been a sexual person and trying to just determine what is the real me in my thought process mm -hmm. and what is chemical and is there a difference? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then 17 years ago, I had advanced ovarian cancer. A lot of my plumbing was removed and that, it, that wow. changed me hormonally. And yeah. then I could see the difference. I'm not thinking the same way that I used to. So I could see empirically how <laughs> hormones can affect the way we was think. that experienced as a loss did you feel yes. oh definitely yeah. yeah yeah well i mean i lost organs but <laughs> and that affected me chemically of course yeah yeah but it enabled me symbolic. to see it and enabled me to see things differently too yeah yeah i in this book i um I talk a lot about femininity and masculinity, and I understand I'm I'm doing that in a time where those categories are being um, explored and sometimes deconstructed. 
Um, I completely recognize that uh, the way the way I'm categorizing things into feminine and the masculine is archetypical. It's not, um, it's not a, it's a way to define energies that exist. Um, but I think that's different than, uh, saying, naming them because we feel like we must fit into them. I think it's uh, into those categories of masculine and feminine. So I think throughout throughout human spirituality and religion, these forces of femininity and masculinity have been employed to describe energies, archetypical energies. And I fully recognize, uh, and I continue to study some of the theories around gender that maybe previous to any con- cultural context that our original state is more androgynous than we can even imagine. Mm. There's some theor- theorists that are posing this as um, as what came before culture. So I'm not attached to it as, as an assignment for anybody, uh, feminine or masculine to choose, but I kind of, for me, I recognize that we all contain somewhat of a spectrum inside ourselves from feminine to masculine. And then with our life partners, we tend to play out a balance of masculine and feminine. It doesn't matter what your gender is, but that we kind of inhabit these ends of the spectrum. And maybe even at different times when if if you're in nature whether whether you're a man or a woman you could be you could it could be said that you are experiencing the feminine or you're you're enjoying the feminine manifestation of energy by being in nature so i'm not attached to it but i i found it very helpful and during my transition you know out of 14 years um and into single life at age 34, 35, that what was bubbling up inside of me that had been suppressed and controlled felt like feminine energy. My creativity, my inst- my instincts and intuition, which I feel like are the domain of the feminine, um, were bubbling up to the surface. Um, and my sensuality, which I feel like personally is tied to my creativity and almost comes from the same place in the body um, felt to be uh, like a a state of femininity rising. And so that's how I explain it in the book. I want to talk about soulmates and I'm going to read from your book, if that's okay. Sure. We have multiple soulmates, those ones who make the biggest imprints, the heaviest impacts, who are not like the others who stick out from the rest. The exchange is profound. Maybe it's instant or not, or the lessons aren't apparent to both parties at the same time. Maybe it's a long time before the bond's purpose unfolds for one or the other or both, Mm -hmm. but you both know it is there. The lessons continue to reveal themselves. The bond will always have been. And you mentioned one of your partners who was a soulmate, but he is not prepared for me for this assignment. Yeah. That just resonated a lot for me. Thank you. And I appreciated reading it. I know that some people, when they're in a bad relationship, 
They just want to let it go and forget it. And I mean, that may be necessary for healing because the person could have been so, so awful, but still there's, there's a forever connection. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I have definitely thought of the idea of soulmates as not just one person. Sometimes it's the form it's, you know, a friend, an important friendship um, seems to be a soulmate. Um, a relationship to a child, you know, can feel like a soulmate. I think our our primary purpose for relationships at this point in time, we don't we're not farmers. <laughs> we don't need we don't need extra help and hands around the farm or, you know, to split, uh, to split up work. Our, our, the purpose is learning and depth and kind of, uh, exploring our potentiality on all levels of being human, um, our capacity for love, our capacity for learning, our capacity for holding space for other people and being held in other people's space. Um, even though the relationships in this book did not last as far as marriage or lifetimes, um, these still these people were still nonetheless soulmates to me. And I was able to move through the relationships and, and the aftermath of the relationships as understanding that each of these people had something to teach me, um, for better or worse, whether, you know, whether the relationship sometimes bordered on, you know, categorical abuse, um, or it was very loving. Everything taught me about my brand of love and my personal brand of love seemed to be that once I loved somebody, um, as a soulmate or otherwise, that, that, was a sense in myself that I would hold forever. Um, whether I moved on into other relationships or not, that that sense of love um, or learning would last a lifetime. And that makes somebody a soulmate. I agree with you. And that can be very intimidating for future partners. Yeah. Who can't handle that. Yeah. But, but hopefully, you know, they they are seeing the purposes or they, you know, the hope is for everybody to see how a relationship can make them grow. And that, that doesn't mean that, you know, when I think a lot of people look for relationships and the second they hit a bump in the road, they're like, Oh, nope, done, done with that. Or this person doesn't measure up to certain standards. And rather than leaving, sometimes there's a great opportunity to learn something about oneself or, uh, what it takes to love another human being unconditionally. Let's talk about the drawings in the book. Okay. Which we haven't even mentioned, but it's about half of the book. E yes. Every entry seems to have a picture next to it, which you have drawn. And there's definitely a unique signature or characteristic to your artwork. Did you do these drawings alongside of the journal entries did some of them come later they were uh 99.9 .9 drawn in real time um not necessarily to accompany 
the journal entries. I wasn't thinking about them like that at the time. But as I put together the book, I tried to go back into my sketchbooks and match the drawings that I had already done with the dates um, of the entries. So some of them were, you know, perfectly related to how I was feeling. And some of them, um, a couple, a couple of illustrations I may have filled in later, but primarily the book includes artwork that was just pouring out of me at the time. And this was also art-wise a return to my personal art because in that long-term relationship, I would mostly focused on my children's books and not mm. my personal art, which was feminine, figurative, mostly nude um, bodies. So this, this was a period of four years that when I say I was reclaiming my art, um, I was reclaiming what was most personal to me as far as the art that I was producing. Um, and so, yeah, these are these are not technically illustrations, which to me means, you know, illustrated for a purpose to explain the text. These were, this was art done during real time, um, coincidentally put together later as a book. At the end of your book, you write bent, not broken. Mm -hmm. And I noticed in most of the drawings, the woman is in some bent form or mm. bended and you also can you describe them because you don't or you may accentuate things or make things curvy or pointed or different than we're used to seeing women forms especially yeah yeah um my personal style and i think this this stems directly from scoliosis and wearing that brace is uh is kind of a classical a classical anatomy study of classical anatomy that I stylize and exaggerate um, because of it you know, as a young adolescent the more I was getting into art I was obsessed with the figure I mean the the I started seeing my x-rays on a screen mm. when I was three and so thinking for, of the body from the inside out and as I used art as an outlet for pain, I found figure drawing was so relieving because I could live vicariously through other people's bodies. And my body was being molded by this piece of plastic. My, you know, completely, my body on one side looks completely different than the other. My ribs started to be squared. My hips were pinched um, um, and dented. I, I was developing, you know, permanent scars from welts. Um, and so I was looking to other bodies for a sense of beauty and seeing other people's, you know, quote unquote, imperfect bodies as beautiful. Um, I started to feel relieved by studying other bodies and then living vicariously through them, finding a sense of beauty in everybody. So the women... The, fig the female figures I draw are, to me, beautiful and imperfect, or imperfect, and their imperfections and asymmetry, and you know, big hands and big feet and pinches and stretches are not necessarily 
you know, the sexualized poses that we often see in art where, you know, the body is presented as, you know, the most beautiful thing. These are bodies in pain. These are bodies kind of in, an, in a pose that implies some kind of interiority is occurring. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people ask me, do you ever draw men? And I, I hardly ever do because I've been so obsessed with the body I'm in. Um, but I, I try to explain that there's a male presence, even though I didn't draw him, there's a male presence in a lot of these drawings in Boston side. Mm. You know, when you see, when you see a body um, curled up and the entry is about the person I was involved with at that moment, he's there, you know, she may be, she may be curled inside his body. Um, to me, there's a lot of male presence there, uh, and they're drawn there, but they're, but kind of in an invisible way. I see that I'm kind of scanning through some of them now and I see the woman form, but you know, there's somebody else there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so men, men are not absent from my work, um, but they may not appear. So, um, you know, in it. In yeah. The... Well, some of these are, are somewhat awkward positions where you could see the bodies. If it wasn't anything there, else. would fall over. Right. So there right. has to be something there and it's yes. the other person. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's somewhat brilliant, Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about this? I just believe that this is an important book. And the things you bring up are important and probably so uncomfortable for so many people. And I could see having a workshop or book readings around this book. Different, You attack different entries and talk about what emotions come out as a result. And I could imagine some people who are very conservative would feel like, you know, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this or this is just terrible. And then say, but why do you feel that way? Yeah. Right? What can you learn about yourself in your reaction? I don't know who'd want to do this, but I think it should, I should think it should be mandatory. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting to share. You know, it's funny when, when you put out a project, especially as an artist, the, your first buyers are usually like friends and family of whatever it is you're selling. And that often feels to the artist like, oh, that doesn't even count because because I'm, I'm not getting to a new audience or I want new people. Um, but that's the way it is, is you, as an artist, you're usually successful first, you know, in the community that knows you. And as I was grappling with putting out this book and there was some fear and even legal uh, considerations that gave me pause before putting it out. Um, I was talking to my family, my parents, and they were part of this conversation of like, are you really going to do this? But they had never read the book. And so they mm. were, um, I didn't, sh they are just now, now that the book has been released, I know that both my father and my mother have read the book. And I told them, there might be some pages you want to skip over, you'll know pretty quickly. You know, there's there's some uh, graphic sexual experiences that I wrote about and both of them, I think bravely read everything wow. and it actually opened up. I'm, I'm very close with my family, but this made me feel 
like we can know each other even better. And I'm personally not embarrassed by anything in the book. I'm happy to talk about it. And I know a lot of people feel, you know, extreme pause before talking about such intimate aspects of um, their lives. But what I'm finding from feedback is from both men and women is that they, they relate to a lot of what I'm saying. And the art, I think the universal art of storytelling, its purpose is not just for entertainment, but for the way we heal and the way we teach each other and the way we learn. Um, and so sometimes hearing, reading your story reflected in someone else's words can be very validating. And there's, you know, there's some, uh, there's one entry in particular that, you know, was giving the the lawyers I work with some pause. Um, and that was the entry that was one of the last sexual interactions with my ex before I left the relationship, before it was over and things were falling apart. And our the sexuality between us became a place where both of us were just feeling pain. It was becoming painful to be sexual with each other. And um, there, that interaction I wrote about, I toned it down a little bit for, for the actual book, um, just to keep his, just to respect some privacy for him. But I insisted on keeping it in there. And it was a very uncomfortable interaction that bordered on violation because he was not tuned in to where I was at at all. And I was crying and I was in pain and it was not noticed. And I think I insisted, you know, there was one lawyer's take was like, well, this could be taken as, you know, um, an accusation of assault. And I said, I'm not saying that at all. I never call, never would call him, you know, never call it that in the book. I think it's an important topic to bring up that even in relationships, there can be sexual violation. And that's often something that women have a hard time talking about mm -hmm. that, oh, because we're married or because we are in a committed relationship, um, I have to go along with or tolerate any kind of sexual interaction, even if it feels bad or violating. And so I insisted on keeping that part in, um, regardless of what the consequences might be. Um, but I, I think it's important for, there's gray areas within relationships and for women to start, you know, owning that and bringing what makes them uncomfortable in relationships to the surface so it can be dealt with. Thank you for your courage once again. Thank you. I mean, I don't know if any of this is courage, It's it's, but it's like doing it anyway. You know uh -huh. what I mean? Just briefly back to your parents. I know that many of us, when we think about our parents having sex, it's like the ick factor, but uh -huh. it had to happen for yeah. us to be here. It's just so ridiculous that yeah. we react that way. And the reverse is also true with parents thinking about their children having sex. And it's just normal, inevitable. We we wanted we want to see it in, in the movies and in the books. We want to hear about it. But for some reason, we're so prudish when it comes to 
our parents and our children. Yeah. Your parents obviously are courageous as you are. Maybe you got some of it from them. Well, I, I think we've been just, we're very close and I think that closeness manifests in being able to say anything to each other. And I actually, you know, my mom actually apologized once she read the book, she really loved the book. And she said, I'm sorry I ever, um, you know, opened my mouth at all about the possibility that maybe you don't do this book and maybe it's safer, you know, mm-hmm. to, to keep this book as something that you write for yourself, but maybe no one else needs to know about it. And that, that never sat right with me as, as what I was going to do. But I think sharing your most vulnerable parts with the people who are closer to you, allow them to know you better. And I think this is going to improve my relationship with my family as I move forward. I'm, I am still technically single. I'm 41 and there's been relationships, um, in the past six, seven years that they did not understand at all. And that they prickled, they got prickly about, um, even, you know, as you know, I'm I'm a full grown adult making my own decisions, but because we're all so close, I hear that from them. And I think this book, um, it serves me to share that whatever I am involved with, there's a reason for it. There's a deep reason for it for me. And if you get in the way, uh, you're, you're, you, I find it almost abusive for someone to tell somebody else about the relationships that they should or shouldn't be in because, you know, unless that person is being absolutely abused, two people are usually working something out very important for themselves and each other in a relationship. And there is a, there is a, um, entry in the book where there's a family mediation meeting and the therapist says she is processing something says this to my family she's processing something get out of her way Mm. and I think they all wanted this therapist to be you know to to be like she's being abused and this is bad for her and and I felt so I, I felt that I was being so seen by that that therapist that and also never at any point in my life was my life spiraling downwards, you know, even in some tumultuous parts of some relationships, I was using that as fuel for my development. Um, And so any interruption would have actually gotten in the way of my growth. We have about two or three minutes left. Is there anything you want to add about the book, Boss Inside, or Reclamation of the Feminine, or your future work, or something about you, Ruby? Well, just because you, we've known each other so long in the vegan space, um, I feel like I I just want to um, encourage anyone who's known me for my children's books to, to hold some space to check out this next evolution. And I think this book if people have stuck with me and been confused about, you know, why they're seeing vegan children's stuff morph into nude bodies and figurative art, this book will um, bridge that gap and help uh, people understand the transition I was in in my personal life to get to this very personal artwork and where I'm going next. And I really, I, it, it, 
put me in a vulnerable position to put this book out and feel like I may ruin the, this was, you know, a fear that I may ruin the, the career that I had made previously, you know, to an audience that had known me as a, a mother and a wife. Um, and so I'm excited for anyone who wants to stick with me and come along on the journey and, and understand. It's very important to me that I did this under the same name. Um, because I think in this day and age, women are still reckoning with being more than one thing, um, being sexual creatures and being mothers, being nurturers and being, you know, seductresses and bad girls and like how we can be all of those things at once. And so it's really been my intent to um, insist that people know me and all of the branches of the work that make me me and not not do anything under a pen name or or really hide behind. I, for a long time, I felt like I was hiding behind the children's books. I couldn't curse. I couldn't talk about what was actually happening in my life, which was I was now single, experiencing my body in a new way, experiencing my sexuality and men and masculinity in a new way. And so, you know, putting this book out, has, it, even before it reached people's hands, I felt um, so much freer to be myself. And I think that's something I want to share with, uh, with women and men, um, but particularly women as we move forward. I'm applauding you. I agree with you. I'm glad you summed it up this way. I think there's a connection between your original work with children's books and this work. There is a bigger picture here about exploitation mm -hmm. and compassion. And uh, you just said it all perfectly. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna care and explain it. <laughs> no, I I appreciate the feedback and the insight. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. The hour has rushed by. I recommend oh. reading Boss Inside a Reclamation of the Feminine, reading it, talking about it. Let's get open. Yeah. The more the cheers to everyone's freedom and moving more into our um, embodying our own freedom, whatever that means to you. All the best with Thank this you. book and your life and who you are and your future art. I look forward to all of it. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Ruby Roth, everybody, author of Bosses Inside, a reclamation of the feminine. Get the book. Start having difficult conversations. Let's make our relationships better. Let's make this planet better. And in the meantime, have a delicious week. <laughs>